Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today's episode is a recording of a panel I moderated at the recent Reuters Events Commodity Trading USA event in Houston. The panel convened to discuss unlocking carbon. How carbon markets, what is the current state of carbon markets, particularly in the US, both compliance and voluntary? How will these markets develop? Will voluntary continue to spearhead the way? And how will carbon markets shape and transform the commodities sector? The panelists were Dina Reitman, head of the energy and commodity practice at DLA Piper, Eric Rubenstein, founder and managing partner of New Climate Ventures, and Lance Titus, Managing Director at Uniper Energy. This is a recording of a panel in front of a live audience, so it will be a little bit different from other episodes. But as always, if you enjoy the show, please do leave us a positive review on the platform you're listening on, especially Apple or Spotify, as that really supports the show. And as always, I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks, Olivia. Good morning, everyone. So we're talking about unlocking carbon markets. My name is Paul Chapman. I'm the co-head of HC Group, a talent advisory and search firm in the commodities markets, and also host of the HC Insider podcast. I would like to thank our panelists for being here and allow you guys to, to introduce yourselves. Good morning, everyone. My name is Dita Reitman. I am with DLA Piper. I am the subsector head of the commodities group there. I've been in commodities for over 20 years, which I tell everyone leads itself very well to being able to advise on the carbon markets. So I'm very happy to be here with all of you today and with the panelists to talk about carbon, figure this all out. Right, guys? Absolutely. Uh, Eric Rubenstein, uh, New Climate Ventures. We're a venture fund, so we're investing in early stage companies, so young companies with a focus on carbon reduction and avoidance. So we're investing in companies that are in the climate tech, circular economy, food tech, and traditional tech spaces, so long as they're emissions touching in some way. Uh, my background, Previously, was both investing and in commodity markets. So we were trading commodities on the desk that I was at, at Louis Dreyfus and Citigroup. Thanks, Eric. Uh, Lance Titus, I'm with uh, Uniper Global Commodities. We're an international energy company in 40 countries, owning 33 gigawatts of generation in uh, some of the markets that are exposed to carbon legislation and voluntary activity. Uh, I lead uh, and head uh, origination marketing, and uh, business development and environmental products for North America. Great. Thank you very much. So I want to start off and try and, I guess, set the scene and some definitions around what we mean by carbon markets. Um, Lance, you've been in and around trading emissions and carbon for quite some time. Can you just set up for everyone some of the history and, and, and where, indeed, the compliance markets currently exist in the U.S.? For sure. And... Um, you know, I look back into the time machine with the Clean Air Act of 1990, which really kind of kicked off a lot of these emission trading schemes, specifically in the United States. So we had the uh, Clean Air Act, uh, Cross-State Air Pollution Act, and um, the covered more NOx and SOx and other types of um, emissions from generation. And then, you know, moving forward with the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, and then as we continue to advance uh, into these markets for carbon specifically, um, you know, the EU ETS kicked off before 
Um, we had any legislation for regional greenhouse gas initiative, which kicked off in uh, 2006 legislation and then went live in 2008. And then we had California get live with uh, 2006 legislation and went into implementation in 2013. It was actually delayed by a year. Um, they were quite ambitious. Um, we worked closely with the Air Resource Board and the California Energy Commission in implementing that. And then as we kind of fast forward, you know, to where we are today, I mean, these markets have been operating for several years. I mean, California just went through its 34th, or 31st uh, carbon auction on tons. And each year, what's interesting is to see how many of these, especially I'm speaking more specifically to the U.S. Uh, markets, but the participants and how they've evolved from both, you know, just investor-owned utilities or publicly-owned utilities to other market participants that are inside the, you know, midstream players that are out there. So... Today, uh, we see the market with a market cap globally of about $850 billion. when we think about that compliance plus turnover in the secondary markets, and it's continuing to grow in interest. And then it's also a segue into offsets because some of these uh, markets allow for offsets to be surrendered in compliance with uh, the obligations that each entity is subject to. So this is really an interesting kind of time in the market as we're seeing a lot more um, activity coming from the other segments, whether it be ESG, SRI, um, other funds that are coming in to participate in these uh, emerging markets or asset classes, and um, how they're interacting with the compliance markets while trying to achieve the ultimate goal of staying you know, below two degrees Celsius. So I think that's a, a, big, uh, a big thing that we're all trying to see here move forward. And then obviously the ambitions uh, in uh, the EU ETS with the fit for 55 uh, with their objections by objectives by 2030 and then uh, advanced uh, accelerating the uh, decarbonization across the other markets that are live in the North American markets. Yeah. Thanks for that. So the, the EU is obviously the predominant one that's taken the, the cap and trade with the EU ETS scheme. We've got it in the compliance markets. We'll come on to voluntary. I think that's the, the more significant discussion here as it pertains to the United States. But um, <clears throat> Eric, can you just... Can you just talk a little bit about what actually a cap-and-trade scheme is and, and, I guess, talk a little bit about California and kind of whether the, the rest of the United States is, is looking at what California is doing? If you don't mind, I'll actually de defer to oh, there you go. Dina, Dina, on, Dina on that one. I think she'd be better to speak to it. Okay, so let's make sure that we are understanding this. There is a compliance market where there are entities that have emissions that they need to reduce, so they have to comply with the reduction requirements. And the legislation is mandated where you reduce your emissions by either buying a credit or you reduce your emissions. And if you haven't reduced your emissions, then you can buy a credit. And this creates a market, a supply and demand for this type of credit. It's called the compliance market. One of the first compliance markets in this country that we're pretty proud of, I think, is the California cap and trade market and the California compliance offset market. So these are these types of markets where you have an obligation, either it's from, it's from the state of California, and you have to meet your obligation to reduce your admission. You also have, in California, the ability to create um, a gasoline or gasoline for your car, which is somewhat made from a biofuel. You can get even another credit for that. So California has created multiple markets where if you're able to meet certain standards, you are able to get a financial benefit. Not only do you meet your standard, but then you're able to buy and sell on those credits and get a financial benefit. Because what I just told you, the additional credit for the gasoline type that's tied to biofuel 
is another financial incentive in California and another type of market. And that idea of a financial incentive and a market sort of leads itself or lends itself to the voluntary market because people began to think, aha, this is the future. People, companies, me, you, we want to reduce our emissions in the future and we don't need to be told what to do. And so it's led to a second type of market, which is the voluntary carbon emission reduction market, which, like Paul said, in my opinion, I, don't, I think it's your opinion as well, it is dynamic at the moment because there are really no regulation. You're in this market to reduce your emission either because you're passionate about it or because you realize there's money there or maybe both. And so that is how it has progressed and that is where we are today. Yeah. I hope that answers your question. Thank you. Just before we move on to voluntary credits, my first question is, there are, the other route to carbon reduction is taxes. I don't know which one of you wants to talk on taxes, but uh, you know, we've seen that in Canada, you've seen that in, some in the US as well. You know, what, is, what is it about cap and trade schemes and even voluntary carbon credits that seem to be more beneficial than just tax a flat tax on carbon emissions? Dina, go on. Okay, so I don't know, you tell me, is it better to get a tax break or is it more exciting to find something that could generate value, that could grow in value, that you could trade and monetize and finance, okay? So if you have an idea, like Eric's companies that he invests in, they have ideas, they're wonderful. But do you think that that company would rather get a tax incentive, a tax break, or do you think that company would rather, their entrepreneurial spirit, these techno technology companies are entrepreneurs, or do you think they would rather take that, that spirit, that idea, show it to a, fi like a financing entity, say this is my idea, give me $10 million and then have somebody else say, well, no, I'll give you $50 million because I know that the credit is going to be worth that. Right? So my opinion is just more excited. There's more, more exciting. There's more value there. Don't you agree? Wouldn't you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on how we're trying to set up as a society what we want um, the future to look like, where big companies that get tax breaks, let's say, that's great for them, but are they really going to finance the development that's going to enable them to achieve that tax break? And if they're not gonna do that, then you need another mechanism to incentivize companies to start, to create themselves, to, to actually do something to reduce these emissions. So it's the technologies that are going to be reducing emissions in the future and that are doing it today, a lot of those are created because you're able to monetize in some form or fashion. And I think voluntary markets are a good mechanism for that myself. But yeah. there's, there's certainly potential for, uh, for governments to think differently on that. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, we'll move on to those in a second. Yeah. Um, Lance, obviously, we have seen essentially this type of scheme work in the past, right? You saw the, the SOX emissions trading scheme that essentially, you know, we, acid rain back in the, the 90s was, was solved because mm -hmm. a technological solution came along. Can you just talk to that a little bit and, and, and how you saw that actually tackle the problem that's at hand, which is carbon emissions? Sure. So uh, think of best available control technology. So when we were either, you know, I worked at XL Energy at the time, uh, we had a massive, you know, fossil fuel fleet, and we had to be considerate to what our exposures were on those uh, emission limits. 
and how we could create abatement through efficiencies or investments into scrubbers or you know, different ways to kind of reduce NOx emissions and then monetize that as a currency or determine how we would redeploy the capital within the company. So, and I think that's what's a really important feature is as you, you kind of get these baselines and you have these emissions trading schemes on how maybe initial allocations are, are given out to the participants of the market and then how these currencies are allowing permits to pollute almost. So depending on the efficiencies, it's designed to ratchet and get more stringent. Those, those credits can get more expensive, accelerating the investment into the abatement technology or new emerging technology that Eric may be looking into or others here in the room. So that those things were kind of like, you know, in the beginning years, a kind of a segue of way to, to implement this into a, a greater carbon regime. And, and, you know, as we look through to see how those reductions have been kind of moving forward. Now, granted, COVID was an interesting aberration to the market, not only just in how market trade behavior, you know, has transpired, but also obviously with, with the, uh, you know, acts of uh, violence by Russia on, on Ukraine and, and greater um, EUA market volatility. But at the end of the day, um, to your point, Paul, that, that these early markets under the Clean Air Act of 1990 basically created frameworks for firms to kind of, you know, make cap and trade come to life. Yeah, perfect. Okay, so I think it's now time to go into the, the voluntary market and, and understand that. And then I really want to come finish towards the, you know, we are, as, as you pointed out, you know, since COVID, ESG is front of center for a lot of investors, for the public itself as well. And, and actually, we're not seeing flows of investment going into the hydrocarbon sector, which is now impacting volatility and prices and so forth. And is carbon a solution to that? But Dina, you're absolutely best placed. Can you um, describe in, in layman's terms for my benefit, what, what, what exactly is a voluntary carbon credit and what is the rough process to going and getting your hands on one or creating one? Yes, so a voluntary carbon credit is created when a method or a technology is used that adds to the reduction of emissions in the environment. It's called additionality. So if you have a project or technology that adds to the reduction, think about that, that adds to the reduction a certain mathematical amount of reduced CO2, you could apply for a credit at a registry, right, where it's traded on a registry. But you have to prove that your technology and your process does meet that additionality. So once you prove that and you meet that standard, the registry will issue, issue you, project, you, method, a serial number. The serial number represents the amount or the ton of carbon that is reduced, that is added to the reduction. So it's simply a serial number that is in a registry. That registry and that serial number is the credit. The credit is traded or purchased and sold, perhaps traded is the wrong word, purchased and sold between parties in the registry. So you're literally transferring serial numbers in between accounts on the registry. Now, you can retire those serial numbers, meaning no more will those emissions exist, 
or perhaps you will sell them on where there's now becoming a secondary market, which maybe the word trading is more better used in, a, in that secondary phase. However, you still have to be in that registry because really all it is is a serial number. And that is the voluntary market. That's how it's created. That's how you see it. That's how you buy it. That's how you retire it and or trade it. I hope that that was clear. Yes, um, uh, very clear. Can you give us some sense? I mean, there's lots of it springs, lots of questions. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> can you before? Can you give us some sense of scale? Maybe Lance, you know, how large is the voluntary market compared to the compliance market? Because the voluntary market is also global. We should say as mm -hmm. well. And and secondly, is this a, is the rise of the voluntary market in response to a lack of a compliance market? For example, in the United States. Well, I think if you look at the compliance markets as a whole versus global GHG, it's actually a small percentage, right? UETS covers 50%, California covers 75%, Reggie covers, you know, uh, main, mainly the power segment. But from, as I mentioned earlier, 850 billion kind of is the, the market cap turnover for compliance market and we're seeing you know this voluntary space having you know 50 to 100 billion in potential but magnitudes more because if we're only four percent of the GHD is being covered by current compliance programs that leaves the rest of the world and so when you start introducing transportation segments aviation segments corporate segments and then people are actually looking at the taxonomy of their carbon uh, you know, uh, exposures, this becomes quite material. So this is where, when I look at the, the different offsets that have been, you know, eligible under compliance markets as a segue of integrity into alternative protocols and technologies that are accepted into the marketplace. And these are emerging ones that Eric's firm is also contemplating. And these are future potential income streams for a lot of different cottage industries and let alone legacy businesses. And I think that that's the thing where we see, you know, I've seen numbers as high as, uh, you know, we could go as, as big as a uh, trillion dollars by 2050. I mean, this is, you know, a really growth story here as people are being more and more conscious to their scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. And then you also have, whether it be the SRI funds or the ESG activity, but I, I hate saying shame factor, but the investment communities and what people are wanting. So now all of a sudden, you know, when you see the letter from Larry Fink uh, from BlackRock to other CEOs and uh, companies, you know, you know, getting on board with complying with some form of a voluntary mandate within, but it also leads to some, you know, accelerated standardizations. So if we think about creating basis markets and alternative, alternative values, um, like when we think of futures markets and you know, treasury bond futures and cheapest to deliver, there's going to be a whole value spectrum, and we're seeing that now. And the opacity is material, right? So there's a lot of key things. I'm sure Dino can speak very, you know, clearly on that will make a lot of people recognize you know, how how value is recognized and how risks are also accommodated. Yeah, perfect. Uh, Eric, I mean, let's let's turn to you because, as as Dina said and, and Lance has expanded on. Actually, a very thin slice of carbon reduction, particularly, is covered by existing voluntary or recognized as voluntary credits. There's nothing in there necessarily at the moment about things like avoidance, new technologies around alternative proteins, et cetera, et cetera. 
Can you just help us understand where, you know, because I mean, one big example is Tesla, where they, you know, one industry in particular has benefited from these schemes because it's, you know, it sits in the right category. Can you just talk to that a bit and then, you know, what we mean by, I guess, expanding the types of categories that these voluntary credits could fall under? Yeah, <clears throat> I guess also, if we're looking at voluntary offsets, it's not just a registry system that you can trade those in or buy and sell those in. You can also do it direct uh, as well. You can do it through other marketplaces. So the registry system is the largest and is the most uh, recognized. Uh, there are a number of registries that are most recognized. I think 70% of, of voluntary offsets right now are going through the Vera registry, for instance, and then others through Gold Standard and, and others. But when you're looking at other ways to create and then uh, monetize these, uh, the technology companies are actually the ones that have been leaders in terms of, and this is just in the last few years, of looking at the market, determining what is a high quality, because quality is something that's been questioned in the registry system. There's a lot of articles that, that speak to this. Uh, we're at a Reuters conference, so maybe there are Reuters articles that, that speak to this. Uh, there are certainly others. And, and that, that question of quality is, is a big concern. Is there, are you actually removing carbon or avoiding carbon effectively in the environment? How many years would that stay out? Or is this something where, uh, in, the, in the case of the natural offsets, where you're protecting a forest over here, but then you're cutting down the forest next door, and that, does that truly qualify if that is the plan? Or you're protecting a forest, let's say, that is already protected, uh, those are questions. But then when you start looking beyond those types of offsets and you look toward, like, like Paul was mentioning, Tesla, where because there is a formal way to create an offset in California, uh, LCFS, uh, the low carbon fuel standard, where Tesla uh, benefits from reducing emissions associated with gasoline or diesel powered cars, um, that's something where they generate significant value for themselves. So in the first quarter that Tesla was profitable, I think it was a, a year and a half or so ago, they sold about $500 million worth of these offsets. So when you look at Tesla being able to do that, but then you look at, say, an alternative materials company that makes a plant-based material that is clearly also offsetting or reducing the amount of emissions associated with petrochemical production or leather, so animal use for, for uh, you know, materials, uh, why can't that also benefit from, from this? And the only real reason is there isn't a mechanism right now, a methodology when it comes to the registry system or outside the registry system, or because there isn't a formalized marketplace or, or legal structure to be able to do that. So in theory, you should be able to create offsets that don't exist today. So when we're talking about the size of the market increasing, uh, it should dramatically increase, particularly now that companies are getting more aggressive about their commitments to offsetting their own emissions, and they have to have plans in place, ideally, where they're reducing their emissions, but also, while they're in that process, helping accelerate technologies, uh, Tesla being one of them, to, to help reduce emissions. Uh, that's something that's very important. That's the acceleration. And then there's direct air capture where you're taking carbon out of the air and you can put it in the ground or turn it into usable things. 
yep. uh, fuels, uh, jet fuel, diesel fuel, uh, concrete, other things. Those are the types of things and beyond that, that we're investing in, but I hope that speaks enough to it. And then there is the challenge, right? Because there's, there's yeah. companies in the audience today that have got um, you know, methodologies to avoid carbon and capture carbon, but there might not be that methodology in a registry right now. And Dina, this is absolutely, you know, this is, I guess, your day job, right? Is, <laughs> is how, you know, that is, it is actually a very challenging, lengthy, and expensive process to come up with a new methodology and have it recognized by one of these registries. And we've got lots of questions as well asking about this. Can you, can you help us understand that process and the costs? Yeah, so you really did a really good thing because you described something that I didn't describe. So thank you, it's a good question. So the methodology needs to be proven to the registry or the registry system. It is a very lengthy process. You have to fit within certain categories. And I met Jay before uh, we, spat, we sat up here and we're talking about this. If you don't fit within a category that the registry already has, so some categories, um, for example, are compost, right? If your technology isn't compost, then maybe there's no methodology for you out there. Or maybe you are doing compost, but there's no methodology for your specific technology in compost. So you have to prove to the registry that, first of all, you fit into one of their categories. If you don't fit into one of their categories, you need to then get the registry to create a category for you. Some of the registries have aversions to certain categories in certain industries. Some of the registries will not create methods in any kind of oil and gas or hydrocarbon um, process or project. You then have to prove through, I want to say, 13 to 20 step process that your methodology actually does reduce emissions and that it can be sustained for a certain period of time. So you, um, what we do is we create development teams. The development teams are made up of lawyers and scientists, and sometimes we bring into our development teams research facilities at universities, and we take you through step by step by step by step of the application process to the registry to get your methodology approved. And then you have to show the registry that you've created a test, that your methodology can be tested and sustained. And when you can test and sustain your addition, your additional reductions of emission by a certain mathematical requirement for that category or the category that you've created, then they will give you a credit. And that is how the credit is generated. That is how the credit, in your words, is efficient and effective and it's proven that it actually does reduce emission. So Eric mentioned that when you are trying to get a credit for a new project in for deforestation or protecting a forest, one of the steps, there's an additional step. You have to actually prove that you're not just saving forests over here and then cutting forests down over here. Every time you're in a different category, there is a different step. And it takes a very long time to prove up your methodology. And it takes an even longer time to prove that it is sustainable and that it can be sustained um, and it is an efficient reduction of the, of the um, emissions and the carbon. And I, I wanna, we're going to talk about risks and how risky some of this is next. But is there, so it seems to me that this costs millions of dollars, right, to, to go through that process. Eric, is there sufficient incentive at the moment, by the way it's structured, or indeed any incentive, for you with one of your, 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 your the companies you're investing in, for example, to go ahead and try and launch a new methodology? Uh, 
we're trying to figure that out ourselves. <laughs> it's unclear how much it's going to cost, and it's unclear whether how you want to go about this, right? Because the registries are behind simply because they're overwhelmed, right? There's too much demand for offsets today relative to the amount of capacity and manpower at the registries to actually create the offsets efficiently. So there's something like a two-year backlog right now in order to get to a point where you're creating offsets off of, or, or not even creating methodologies. Yeah, we're just talking about the actual approval of offsets from projects with existing methodologies at, at registries. And there's something like a two-year backlog, at least at Vero, which is the largest, right? So, so you're talking about something where it's going to take two years to get a new project where you're protecting a forest or something through, let alone a new methodology. So they're looking at these new methodologies and saying, hey, what's the size of that market? Should we be approving these as well? And, and that's something they're going through. So whether you go through that system to do that, and it takes years, or whether you do it outside of that system, there's different risks associated with, with going either route, regulatory as well. Will there be regulation within, say, the next two years that's going to regulate in or regulate out uh, voluntary offsets, right? It's, it, all of those things are unclear. So yes, there's risk, and yes, there's time, and, and we're, we're figuring it out. But yes, there, is there incentive? There's certainly incentive. So there's, there are companies that are trying to go through this for sure. Um, the upfront costs are fairly minimal when it comes to uh, actually proving whether your technology is doing what you think it's doing or what, you, what you're saying it's doing. So you can get an LCA, which uh, is effectively just a, um, a, 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 I guess, report that goes through every step of your life cycle of your uh, carbon emissions and says, okay, you're, you're doing this at the beginning, at the end, you're creating this, or this is what's happening. And on that arch, okay, yes, you're reducing emissions by X amount. Mm. So you go ahead and you can do that. Universities will help with that. So that, that's a fairly cheap process. And then doing everything around that in order to build, let's say, a, a formal case to a registry or just to uh, the public is, is the other piece. But if you can do that direct with a company because they see that LCA and they say, look, we believe this, this is true, you're removing these emissions, then someone like a Stripe or a Facebook or a, a Microsoft or any of these companies might be willing to, to actually take your word for that, you know, kind of put a stamp on it themselves and, and buy it. And then there's the risk that you go and sell it to someone else. So you need to, you know, there's some protection that you need to put in place for that, but there's a cheaper way to go about it in that sense where you could just go and direct sell it to a company. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that bypasses everything. Now, again, it's uh, whether, you know, a company uh, is willing to do that, to purchase that or not, and that's probably a, a question for a lot of people in the room is, is up to those companies to determine yeah. that. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence, and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe, and the Americas, and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. But would it stay with you, Eric? Would it be easier, more clear, if you were to be the principal in establishing a new methodology that somehow you benefited from other organizations then using that methodology for their own you know, 
offsets, et cetera. You know. uh, are you speaking to kind of becoming a registry yourself? No, no, I'm, I'm saying if, you, if it, you, you invest in the company and you decided that this actually does achieve carbon reduction or avoidance, but it's not currently covered by a methodology on a registry, and you go on through all that big process, you know, suddenly you've opened the way for lots of other companies to take, you know, not take advantage, but to use that methodology without any of that upfront cost. I mean, how do you benefit from that? Is there, would it be clearer if there was a way of rewarding organizations that were advancing the cause of, of, of new methodologies, new technologies? I mean, yeah, having a reward for that would be great. The, the <laughs> yeah. issue, that yeah. just isn't one. Okay. I, th I think the issue <laughs> then is, is, again, it comes back to, will that create other issues where all of a sudden you're giving people money to create methodologies and how sound are those methodologies yeah, yeah. and who's approving those methodologies because everyone would go out if it, there was enough money involved, right? And they just create methodologies and you can be fairly flippant about that if, if you were just doing it on your own and particularly if you're being paid to do it in, in the form that, you know, let's say a government was paying you in order to create these. Um, yeah, there, yeah, I could see there where there could be issues, but would it make, you know, yes, it would create more offsets. And I think where the market's going today, you'll end up running out of high quality voluntary offsets in the next year or two because of the rate of, of kind of the market uh, demand outpacing supply, right? And so you'll end up incentivizing people through the price of the offset itself. So if the offsets true. yeah increase in value enough, I and mean, we're kind of in an interesting place where offsets increased in value significantly toward the end of last year, and then this year they've, as uh, I guess, broader markets have sold off, not commodity markets as much, right? But you have you have like this this dip in the market, but I think you'll see substantial demand that's going to continue to outplace the supply that is going to increase the value of offsets, and then that'll be the impetus for people to really push forward and put more effort in. And I think registries and others will gain interest in moving more quickly or hiring more people in order to support that demand. Registries right now, Vera even has said publicly a number of times that they are hiring aggressively, I think doubling their workforce this year or something of that sort, in order to try and keep up with the demand. So. I think that's that's the path that's going to happen in the near term because governments aren't going to act fast enough, and also there won't be unless you create a mechanism you, to get paid. Like there, there isn't going to be just naturally someone that is going to create that mechanism to pay you in order to create. Yeah. This. So the market's got to do the work. I do agree with him. Yeah. That the value of the credit is what's driving yeah. the methodology development. If you can create a methodology for a technology that you've created. The value for you is there, we, and we see it with abatement. You know, if you think about compliance markets, right? These these are signals to incite change, right? And there's those compliance markets have compliance uh, penalties that incite that. But when we look over to the voluntary space, look. When I think about the projects, whether it's measurable, verifiable, and permanent, right? And the integrity across that kind of stage gates. Um, you know, to mint these things as uh, as a form of uh, you know offsetting GHG. Um, the other thing is with regards to how this market evolves, and and I, it's an interesting point that you make. You know, Paul, can you get some type of benefit? But then I go back to the market because if you're first to market, yeah, I get it. Where you in pharmaceuticals, you trademark something and you have a window to kind of monetize the investment you make into that. Whereas here, this is also a social good that we're trying to create, right? So we have a, a moral 
you know, obligation, I think, to firms. Like, we're doing it, obviously, because, you know, they have to be able to accommodate the costs to, to, to do this activity, or behaviors will, you know, materially shift to help, you know, help alleviate some of the, the GHG uh, emissions. But at the end of the day, I think that whether it be through what we're seeing with the registries providing integrity, right, for these instruments and, and the permanence of this, like, because we know, you know, there's error issues that we see in some of the, the nature-based instruments, whether it be by species of trees or other things or leakages that were not intended. So the spirits of what everyone's doing is well intended, but through time we learn too, right? So we're pioneering new frontiers to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in this voluntary. Kind. Yeah, but let's be very clear, your technology if it has an IP protection, it is still protected. Mm -hmm. So if you create a methodology that has an IP component to it that is patent protected, that is yours. Yeah. So, so you, I, have that. You, can, you can have that too as an incentive, mm -hmm. which I think a lot of them do. That's a great point. A lot of them do. We don't give that up as lawyers either. And, and I, I guess I'll give one example also of, of a potential way that a company could benefit from everything that we're talking about. So let's say an oil and gas company or an airline uh, doesn't want to just go out and buy carbon offsets. Uh, what they could do is invest in a company that could potentially create these or that is creating these and then benefit from the uplift of value of that company as they are creating offsets and selling them. And maybe that company also happens to be an alternative materials company and you happen to be a petrochemical company, let's say, and you invest in an alternative materials company that in theory is competing with you in the future that company, you could benefit from using that product, right? You take in the, this alternative plastic and you put it and you sell it in your system. And then in addition, let's say that creates a carbon offset, then all of a sudden that helps the petrochemical company. I'm using each of these industries, you know, independent of one another, but there's all of these synergies. So you see someone like an Occidental Petroleum who's already far down that path where just a number of years out, they could be producing more carbon offsets than they are producing oil in terms of revenue. Yep. And that's that's an interesting kind of paradigm where this industry could outpace another industry and you can benefit on both sides. Yeah. And it offsets your emissions in the meantime. You can buy the offsets off of the company that you've invested in. So it's just a quick point to that, Eric, too, as, as you guys are you know, supporting that. But we're also seeing that in the investor-owned utility segments where they have venture capital arms internally that are actually doing exactly what, what you said and other industries are doing that where they have internal small venture capital funds that are experimenting per se to learn. And that's, I think, one of the things that is interesting to see more and more you know, dollars being allocated internally to explore and experiment what emerging technologies or opportunities are out there to accelerate the, the GHG um, obligations they're trying to accommodate for. Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to, I want to move on to sort of that that whole you know how we essentially we can unlock these carbon markets to, to build investment and this momentum that we've had since COVID and also the public awareness of you know when we had blue skies over Delhi right that it's a crucial moment you know that we realise the impact of of, of, of greenhouse gases um, just on our local environments but. Lance, you, you mentioned a bit earlier about the, the risks and just sticking with the compliance markets, but it also affected the voluntary markets. We saw, you know, <clears throat> the day before you, Russia was going to invade Ukraine, very high prices and expectation that prices would, you know, lots of people were buying. You'd think that uh, because, you know, the gas got shut off, Europe would have to use its coal plants and prices for carbon would rocket. We saw the exact opposite, right? We saw a 
whatever it was, a, a 40, 30% drop, you know, in, in European ETSs. Um, <clears throat> and it, it took the market by surprise. I mean, these are still highly volatile, very risky markets. And can you just talk to that a little bit as well? And, and why you think that is, where that sort of, you know, wh where the volatility is generated, where it comes from? Yeah, for sure. I mean, generally, they're uncorrelated. But what happens during events like that, we had contagion. So they became correlated. And I think what people you know, maybe in this room are familiar with, like some of the Russian participants that are in these EUA markets or other large speculators in, uh, that have come into the market in the last few years, when we had those events that occurred and you had some liquidations, remember, we also have record high prices for gas, TTF, NBP, JKM. These are global prices that are through the roof as well. So everyone who is kind of long the carbon trade may also have to be using some of the open trade equity to finance margin calls on other commodities. So you're seeing this interaction now across these commodity segments in working capital management and managing your margin call risk. And then getting back to that, that the correlations that also trickled into the US where we saw the sell-offs into the AB, you know, the California carbon allowances as well. But what's interesting is, you know, you know, we've seen a high price of 98 bucks uh, or 98 euros in the EUAs, and it's right around 82 and change. Um, but they had gone down, you know, below 80. And then we saw California also take, you know, take it down a little bit, but come right back up. So I mean it printed as high as 37 and change, it's around $32 now. So these markets are acting in, or behaving because of the irrational activity of these global geopolitical con issues that are facing companies. So I think that one thing's for certain is being able to have the mental fortitude to navigate through these choppy waters. But then again, it also lends to opportunities. So those firms that are actually either making markets or actively trading these are actually being able to take advantage of maybe some of the volatility. And those that are you know, managing their obligations are having to be very steadfast on how they kind of contemplate these geopolitical situations and how best to navigate their you know, at-risk uh, portfolio. Mm. And, and so alongside the, obviously, you know, me and my capacity in my company, we've seen obviously lots of demand for carbon teams, carbon talent, trading carbon, um, and you know, the trading houses themselves have built up substantial um, uh, volumes of voluntary credits as well. And one thing, Dina, that you have talked about in the past on other, other podcasts, et cetera, is we are seeing corporates starting to build, probably quite quietly, huge inventories of voluntary credits at the moment. Can you just talk to that sort of groundswell of interest and, and how, how big, how, you know, how significant that is and what it means for the commodity sector more broadly? So I think that there's a groundswell because of, I believe that at some point there is going to be either a requirement or a public outcry for these companies to, or public companies to reduce emissions quite publicly. I think that it will be demanded of them whether it's mandated from the government or just the public will demand it of them. And I think that the trading companies that you had mentioned see this, they know that this is happening, and so they're building out their trading, their trading, I guess what you would call it, their inside groups um, to figure out and to determine how they're going to trade, price, and manage this type of market. There really is no price for carbon credits, voluntary carbon credits at the moment. I mean, when we write, our contracts now, it's very difficult. We usually base our pricing on a realized price or 
um, the market price at the time, which is really a realized price, but there's no real index, if you will. And so you see a lot of companies beginning to think about, do I build an index? Do I build a basket? Am I going to be the first one that's going to create a future on this? Right? And so I see, because I've been, I'm a commodities lawyer, I see and I hear a lot of these ideas because they come for legal advice. Am I going to, do you think I should go to the CFTC and create a future? Do you think I maybe should create a SEF or a swap that somehow you can get exposure to the voluntary market? Because I also think what they're seeing is, because I can see a lot of the questions up here, most people, most traders are not going to want to hold the underlying credit, but they are going to want exposure to this price volatility. So they're beginning to think, how do I give traders and my company exposure to this price volatility without having to actually you know, get a registry account, hold the credit, remove the serial number, move the serial number between my account, et cetera, worry about title transfer, et cetera. But I do want to make money on this price volatility. So you'll see that they're beginning now to figure out how to even trade. Or, well, first they have to figure out the pricing. They have to figure out how to basket the pricing. They have to figure out the risk around that pricing. And then they're going to try to figure out how to trade that price without actually holding the credit. But do, are you seeing this as well? Because I yeah. see your, your hand. Yeah. So one of the things I think that's important to recognize is how the capital markets are responding, right? So whether it be socially responsible investing or how the debt markets are uh, also contemplating the uh, exposure to GHG risks, right? So could that you know, lend to significant um, you know, basis point increases in their borrowing rates? So that could really change kind of their wax of, of certain companies. Yeah. So I think that that's one thing that, you know, how the capital markets are also involved in this great space, right? So how, like I said, ESG funds or SRI funds, um, stuff that you're doing, uh, the debt markets and the banks that are also financing some of these activities, they have to take this into consideration. And maybe even some of the ETFs or um, funds that have mandates that preclude them from making certain investments because of this emerging um, you know, interest in GSG, GHG. And that's the thing that I think that you know, we're seeing this kind of convergence of multiple markets at the same time and sectors, right? And getting back to like, there's, you know, What's the, the pool of these eligible offsets out there and emerging technologies that could help abatement and other? But that gets back to you know the accumulation by firms kind of getting some of this on their books because yeah th this could be real and this could have material impacts into share you know shareholder value. So shareholders are going to be more active and I know I can tell you right now there's hedge funds out there that are you know have strategies where they're basically poking holes in you know the sustainability reports or ESG claims of publicly traded companies and doing dollar weighted spread trades. Yeah. I mean Deutsche Bank last week dare I mention it. Um, so that, that springs a couple of questions. A very basic one. I'm allowed to ask the odd stupid question. How would you go about, I mean, you, you talked about trying to figure out how can you get exposure to this price volatility? How can you create, you know, how, how can um, trading companies mitigate risk for clients, et cetera? How would you go about at the moment figuring out the price of any voluntary credit that you currently hold? There's an OPUS index, but for the most part, I mean, what do you just ask somebody if they want to buy it. You literally ask somebody if you yeah. want to buy it, and they say. It, it depends on what it is. Yeah. yeah. But a lot of it is <laughs> going to the market and seeing what a buyer would pay yeah. for it. Yeah. Because yeah. not all are created equal by any means. And then just, just very briefly before we move on and go to questions, um, you mentioned it there, Lance, obviously this measurable, verifiable, and permanent. You know, and for a lot of these 
we're talking about biological systems. You know, there's a, there's a very you know uncertain world out there. You know, seeing forest destruction through La Nina, etc. At the moment, I mean that these things are inherently quite risky, um, in, unless they are a concrete technology around capture or something, right? So, you know, how do you go about also managing those risks and, and discounting the, the credits, etc.? Well, I think that's a great point because, like, the spectrum of price could be anywhere from a dollar fifty to twenty dollars. It's so opaque right now. Yeah, and there are some brokers out there that are trying to provide some visibility into this value, but it's very, very choppy per se. But I would say, when you think about damages, and this is where I'm going to turn to Dina because I'm, I'm sure you can speak to this because this is a really important thing. Like when you're buying something, and whether it's you know a registry transferred affidavit, um, attestation. But the reps and warranties of what you're buying, are you legitimately getting what you're committing to or what you were sold? And this is a really important thing. Like, you know, buyer beware. I mean, this is this is not for the faint of heart, and it really does matter, and, and quality matters, right? But but what I do think is the getting back to the point of measurable, verifiable, and permanent into emerging classes that are eligible under these different, call it registry or tracking systems. And I, I'll turn it over to Dina to maybe talk about how damages are even contemplated in a lot of the agreements you structure. So I know that Eric talked about that there are ways and there are companies that will buy this sort of emission reduction off of a registry, but it is very risky. The, what the registry provides is what Lance has said. They make it measurable, they make it verifiable, and they make it permanent because you have to show them through your methodology that you can sustain the additional reduction, right? That's how it's measurable, and that's how it's permanent, sort of. So when you're creating your agreements to buy and sell these types of credits, or when you're creating your agreements to finance a project that is supposed to generate these types of credits, um, you have to be very clear that what you are buying has to, well, here's how I, I do it. You have to be very clear that what you're buying is supposed to create a certain percentage of a rate of return. You really want your agreements to be tied to the rate of return sold to the credit, but if it's not, you can structure other ways to get a rate of return. A lot of them have underlying assets. You need to be very careful when you're perfecting. I don't even know how you, nobody can even figure out how you perfect on a voluntary credit. I see your questions here. It's literally a serial number. I mean, we're still figuring all that out. But you can perfect on the underlying asset. There are other things that you would do. Your, your reps and warranties are almost as long as your agreements. If your agreement is 20 pages long, your rep and warranties are 25 pages long because you're saying things like, you will operate this project in accordance with this methodology. If you do not operate this in accordance with this methodology, you are, you know, essentially we, we get damages. And the damages will be not only the money we gave you, but, but the, the potential money we gave you and the potential for the value of the credit. I mean, yeah, it's, it's very difficult but, and challenging, but fun. Yes, yes. To structure these things to, to go to Lance's point and how you get your money back and make sure you get your right damages. Fantastic. Just one quick thing, too, is force majeure issues, right? So if you think about famine and disease in the animal segment, or you think about fires and other you know, climate-related risk hazards, um, force majeure provisions become an extremely important element of this. And you know, a lot of these projects, you know, people aren't going to float um, you know, debt on a project or st structured note. It's really equity investments into a lot of these projects. So I think that you know, 
whether it be damages, force majeure, and even how the initial cap structures are put together to get these projects even to move forward or these protocols to be even evaluated to, to go to the respected re registries for eligibility. Yeah, yeah, these are different force majeure provisions. These are not commodities force majeure provisions. Okay, they have to have certain language in them that will account for perhaps a registry going out of business, and a, a, a law being changed, uh, government going out. I mean, they're not, you can't just pick up a force majeure provision and be like, well, ha, I'm a, I have a commodities agreement. I'm just going to pick up a force majeure provision. It doesn't work like that. It's not like your act of God type yeah. of force majeure I think, provision. I think Dean is demonstrating that she's the premier lawyer <laughs> in, this, uh, in this space, and uh, it will charge everyone $1,000 an hour. But um, uh, one final question. I'd like to get each of you to comment on it before we move to the questions. Just zooming back out, right, you know, You've got this, we talked about it yesterday on the panel, this sort of dichotomy of lots of money backed by whatever, you know, stakeholder efforts on the ESG chasing ultimately too few projects, too little technology to do with carbon abatement, capture, avoidance, right? And, and on the flip side, we've got too little money, it would be apparent, going into hydrocarbons, um, which is causing this short-term volatility, disruption, impact on real people's lives today, it's paying you know, $6 at the gas pump and much more impacting in the developing world. And it, it seems to me, and I've had this discussion with other people in the market, that what's, what is creating that dichotomy is, is arguably potentially carbon not having a true functioning global price or having sufficient mechanisms for people to be able to price it into projects. Yes, I will invest in this hydrocarbon business because the fuel is important, but I've, I, here's my carbon offsets that I've applied to it or car, the, the price that I've paid and investors can be certain there's not going to be a big tax coming down the line that disrupts that entire project. You know, I'd love to get each of you, perhaps Lance, starting with you. Is carbon, some, whatever mechanism it ends up being, whether voluntary ends up becoming compliance, is carbon crucial to us achieving energy transition? It's absolutely crucial, absolutely. And I think the key is also standardization, right? So you just hit the, the key. If, if we think about carbon, really is a global element, but in order to be considered a commodity, it needs to be standardized, because if not, we just have a bunch of forward agreements with, with companies based on acceptable terms and conditions and, and protocols. And I think that you know, the more we can get, you know, working groups to try to create these more standardized products. And I think, you know, some of the exchanges have done a good job with, you know, the NGOs or the, uh, e, the GEOs that are getting listed, whether it be, you know, CME, Nodal, ICE, whoever, that are putting a lot of this product out into the marketplace to try to get that to happen, to get more standard um, standardizations. But also having a medium in which how do you value, you know, like I said earlier, cheapest to deliver, right? So like in gold metals, you can assay the metals and you know what the quality is, or cocoa, you can do that, and coffee. So you know when we're thinking about the quality of offsets, when I said the prices are anywhere from a dollar fifty to twenty bucks, it's all over the place, and a lot of it's value-based pricing based on story, based on countries, um, you know, indigenous impact uh, to communities. So it's like, you know, I. I really want to see this thing go. I mean, it's been 20 years. I've been, you know, I remember back in 2002 and being in New York, and bankers were looking at imposing, you know, 300 basis points to carbon uh, risks with utilities with high thermal fleets. And here we are in 2022. 
right? This is a long time coming that people have been working in this space, but no one really paid attention to it because it, outside the compliance markets, it was a small incubator of voluntary action or where boards felt strongly about implementing that internally. Um, and then, you know, the cottage industries that have evolved from that, like we talked about auditing, verifiers, you know, the, you know, going through your desk audits. Like you have like, a bunch of green jobs or carbon-related jobs that have been created on the back end of the ambitions of GHG reductions. Eric? Yeah, I mean, this isn't just an energy transition. It's a decarbonization of our entire global economy. So I guess what I would say is hydrocarbons aren't the enemy. Emissions are the enemy. So if you can decarbonize even the oil industry, let's say, and all of a sudden, I mean, there's two ways to go about that, multiple ways, but, but let's say you're capturing your emissions and using them for something, rather, and let's say you're decarbonizing the trucking fleets and decarbonizing different parts of the, of the chain, at least, uh, that's a way to go about it. You could also capture carbon and then turn it into fuels. So let's say replace jet fuel so that there is a transition in the airline industry while technologies are catching up and battery technologies are catching up where you could have large airliners that are, say, battery or hydrogen powered. In the meantime, why not create a fuel that's out of carbon, as, you know, if you can create that efficiently and effectively and cost effectively? Um, I, mean, I think those are all important ideas, but the mining industry is also going to have to decarbonize. If you're going to create all these batteries, you can't have the emissions coming out of the mining sector outpacing, let's say, the decarbonization of the fleets so there's a lot of components, I think, that are very important, and it's the decarbonization that's important, mm. and that transition that uh, allows for emissions in the future to be far reduced, not just you know, demonizing any sector of the economy because it, it has to take time to get there. Yeah, it's carbon is the, the ultimate commodity almost, but Dina, yours is the right to the last word. Right, so I agree with both of you, and I don't think I could have said it any better. The carbon markets are the future. I do think that we will need to standardize them for them to be the future and the biggest commodity probably that we're going to see in our lifetime. I think standardization is the, is the answer, not necessarily regulation at this point, in my opinion. And I do believe that that came from you, standardization. And I do believe, Eric, you're right, that it is not just the hydrocarbon industry, it is everything. There's carbon in everything we do, and I've seen some very creative clients and potential clients come to me right down to reducing carbon in your garbage. So it is everywhere, it can be in everything and come from anyone, and it is going to be the next big hot commodity, so it's here to stay. Perfect, well thank you. I wanna to move to a couple of questions. Um, and I think this one is, is, is definitely for you, Dina. How do you see voluntary credits as a physical product or a financial product? Where do you see this market going into the OTC swaps? I mean, this is obviously quite a challenging question. Yeah. There's lots of things that aren't yet defined that start bringing in a lot of regulators and, and so forth. Right. So the credit itself, although you can't hold it, the CFTC has said in its, register, in its, in its definition of a swap, that when you buy and sell that number, if you actually are transferring that number and you can prove that your intent is to transfer that number, that is a physical forward. You need to be very careful in what you're doing because if you are not actually going to transfer that number or your intent is not to transfer that number, 
it could be seen as a swap, and it could be seen as a swap that needs to be, as you all know, it needs to be, would be considered an over-the-counter swap that would need to be reported, um, the life cycle would need to be reported to the CFTC. So when you are dealing in, um, I guess you would call it, we call them voluntary offset credits or voluntary credits, no matter what it, it is, a methane-based, a carbon-based, any type of credit, which is why I believe the registry is so important, because you want to stay out of the crosshairs of the CFTC, you do need to show that you are moving, taking, or providing that number somehow to somebody else, and that you're physically delivering that registry number. Thank you. And then I, we've covered some of those others through the conversation. I guess the one that sort of strikes me there is, and Lance, to you, is you're, you're the one managing risk as we speak. How do you account for, manage, the regulatory risk that comes along with compliance markets and even the voluntary market as well. I mean, that's a, a huge unknown that you've somehow got to account for and justify. Well, I think regulatory risk is probably the biggest one, you know, that the compliance markets have faced over the years, whether it be program shaves or other amendments. And if you look back in history, every program's had some tweaks along the way. Right, and um, you know, will that continue? Yeah, possibly, because each time, you know, we're we're learning something new as well, right? So that that's an important thing about emerging markets. And you know, I, I want to say that you know, commodities trading has been around a while, but you know, carbon, although the ideas existed since I said earlier, the, the mid early 90s, but here we are today, and and those risks are real. And I think accommodating. Yeah, we look at carbon-free cargoes on our LNG fleet. We look at you know green, blue, turquoise, hydrogen, ammonia mediums to move the, these commodities to get them to destination markets and people doing fuel switching or transitioning to a lower carbon economy. But um, from a risk perspective, it's tough. It really is because you know not only do you have project-based risk, so if you're going down the offset route uh, to accommodate some of that and. The offsets also is almost like a tail tail kind of thing because you know if you look at some of these programs, you know um, California only allows four percent offsets right now, right? And other markets have up to eight like in, in the, the EU ETS. But um, I think that you know that's a, a tough one. Most people are going to stick to compliance-oriented markets and the mechanisms that define those compliance mechanisms and the penalties for non-compliance are really the way we're analyzing you know the risk spectrum. But obviously, liquidity is critical. Like we've seen, you know, that can turn into a vacuum at times. And you know, at the other times when there's such a large amount of speculators that have also come into these markets mm. in the last three years. We haven't mentioned that, but yes, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we, we take a look at every facet of that and then try to gauge that. And also, we think about the taxonomy of our own carbon exposures, whether it be scope one, scope two, scope three, and how and you know, how we're managing those exposures and, and how best to contemplate the ones into the future so that we can get to, like our objective, you know, is, you know, to decarbonize, you know, our activities to a certain percentage by 2030 and by 2035 fully decarbonize our whole asset fleet. Right? That's so. Well, um, I think we all heard it here that carbon is going to be the most important commodity of the future. And if you, you and your organization aren't thinking about it today, then you, you probably should be soon. I, I found it a fascinating discussion. I really want to thank our panelists, Lance Titus, Managing Director at Uniper Global Commodities, Eric Rubenstein, founder and managing partner of New Climate Ventures, and Dina Reitman, the lead and pra practice lead for the commodities at uh, DLA Piper. So thank you very You're welcome. much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.